Well, good evening. Welcome again to our continuing series called Uncommon Sense. In this series, we are looking at some of the parables of Jesus that have to do with everyday living. We talked about the kingdom, Jesus bringing the kingdom of God in those parables. We talked about looking toward judgment, heaven at the end. We looked at the parables that told us what God is doing in this world. But in this series, we're going on to some other parables of Jesus that say, and given that this kingdom is here, and given that we have decided, put our trust in Jesus Christ, and put ourselves at the rule of God, if you will, to enter the kingdom of God, that God is the ruler in our life, how then shall we live? How then shall we conduct ourselves in light of eternity? One of the topics I'd like to talk about that Jesus speaks about a lot is the idea of prayer. Let me show you a picture, though. Since Laura and I are here in Israel, I thought I'd share with you one of the places that we really like to go. This is the Western Wall, sometimes known as the Wailing Wall, if you will. Let me tell you what you're seeing there. This wall where the people are lined up facing it, praying on the right side of your screen, is actually not part of the temple, it's not even part of the Temple Mount. In fact, just at the top of that wall is the flat portion called the Mount, the Temple Mount, that today has two mosques on it, but in the time of Jesus had the temple, uh, the temple of God sitting on that mount. Well, that wall that you're seeing right there is one of the remaining portions of a retaining wall that Herod the Great, remember Herod the Great? the one who tried to kill Jesus, but before that he had built. He's a great builder. And he built up the Temple Mount with some retaining walls to make it bigger, flatter. He refurbished the temple that Solomon had built hundreds of years before and made it a marvel, a beautiful temple of God. Well, that temple used to sit just above this retaining wall. And so now this little piece of wall is one of the holiest places to Jews. It's a retaining wall, but it's part of that temple complex, and they believe that that spot is the closest spot they can get to to where the Holy of Holies in the temple used to be. And so this western wall, there are people praying there all the time. They'll sometimes write their prayers and slip them into the cracks. You'll see people... Uh, Orthodox Jews with their prayer shawls, praying in front of it. In fact, you'll see a lot of prayer like this, and this is kind of what I want to talk to you about, is, about praying, is they'll take their prayer books and they'll daven, and they will recite the prayers as they are davening in front of the wall, and they will re repeat re these rote prayers. Now, I'm not criticizing, I'm just telling you, that's a way of praying. So they'll pray in this place, and they'll pray reading the words. A lot of people have ideas about prayer. Some that they're praying like the Jews in, in, in a more of a rote fashion to us. We would consider that more of a rote fashion to a God. But there are other people in the world who think differently about prayer. And so as we set the stage to see what did Jesus think about prayer, I'd like to tell you a couple of ideas of what people in our world think about it. First, look at a couple of interesting quotes. This is... Uh, from Oliver Sacks, a neurologist and author, who cared, he wrote, if there was really any being to pray to. What mattered was the sense of giving thanks and praise, the feeling of a humble and grateful heart. Well, think about what he's saying there. He says prayer, it's not necessarily even have to have a God 
that's really there that you're praying to. It's really more human-centric. It's like, what is the prayer doing to me? Maybe it's giving me a more humble heart. Look at this next quote. This is from uh, Rabbi Ken Stern. God gave man free choice and free will. So God can direct, guide, and help, but not control everything. Prayer is not a magic bullet. Prayer has other purposes besides petition or asking. It's meant to help us become better people through our encounters of God. Again, you see kind of a humanistic approach. This isn't so much about God as it is about me praying is good for me. It does something inside me. It makes me somehow a better person. Here's one more. Look at this. Different religions have different routes to the same destination, being close to God. If you believe in God, prayer is how we talk with him. It links us with generations past and present and with those to come. If you do not believe in God, prayer can hedge your bet. Prayer can crystallize your thoughts and hopes and your fears. Prayer is among your best hopes for becoming a better human being. Now, that's an interesting mishmash of secular uh, something for everybody. Oh, if you believe a God, then prayer helps you get closer to him. In some mystical way, prayer connects you to people who are dead and people who are yet to come. If you don't believe in God or you're not sure, prayer hedges your bets. Like, God, I don't know if you're really there, but if you are, I'm praying so that I'll get credit for it on the day of judgment. And in some mystical sense, prayer just makes us a better person. Well, my point in bringing this up is not that any of these make any sense to us as Christians at all. These are all great adventures, huge adventures, and completely missing the point. But my point to say this is people of all ideologies are interested in this idea of prayer. And there's always been this idea that perhaps, just perhaps, prayer could change my circumstances, or maybe somehow prayer can change me. Well, how do Christ followers think about prayer that's a little different than this? Here's a great quote that pretty much summarizes it. We do not believe in the power of prayer, says Burke Parsons. We actually believe in the power of God, which is precisely why we pray. You're going to see that that captures the idea very well of what Jesus is going to teach us in this lesson. I'd like to look at two parables of Jesus, not the only parables about prayer, but two that really turn the prism just a little bit. They're not exactly what you would expect Jesus to be teaching about prayer. But before we do that, as Jesus got into these two parables, I want you to see the setting. I want you to see how did Jesus introduce these parables? What was going on? Well, in Luke chapter 11, we read this. One day Jesus was playing, praying in a certain place. And by the way, as you read your New Testament, you'll be surprised how many times you will see that Jesus is praying. Somewhere alone by himself, he's just constantly praying, praying with his disciples at a meal, Jesus is subtly, as you read through it, we don't often notice it when we read the New Testament. He's praying a lot. Well, obviously, he was praying enough for them to ask him this. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just like John taught his disciples. In other words, Jesus prayed enough that it prompted them to say, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive anyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now you may recognize that as the Lord's Prayer. And you may recognize that it's a little shorter than what Matthew writes down. I would suggest to you that Jesus answered this question many different times. 
And I suggest to you that he kept certain key ideas in there, but Jesus' purpose wasn't to say, okay, you need to say these exact words because there's magical power in these words. We don't believe that. He said, I want you to pray these sentiments. You're our Father in heaven. You are holy, and your name needs to be glorified. May your kingdom come on this earth. We know we rely on you for our daily bread, and please forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And please do not lead us in temptation because we desire to follow you to be like you. We desire to turn from sin. You're going to see those ideas in all of Jesus' prayers. And he prays many times in the New Testament. So he, he answers in that way. So prayer is important to Jesus. What we pray is important to Jesus. And I'm going to suggest to you that in our daily living, prayer is probably the greatest untapped resource for most Christians. We say, oh, I will pray for you. And I assume that we do, and that's great that we do. We often pray and bring God a list of cares and concerns and, Lord, would you do this? Lord, would you heal this? Lord, would you take care of that? But I would suggest that most of us really fall easily out of the habit of praying, of talking with God. Have we cultivated that as something that's a very regular thing in our life, that we pray quite a bit? As the scripture says, pray continually. As the disciples observe, Jesus is praying quite a bit. I really think prayer is one of those great untapped resources in the Christian life. So let's see what Jesus has to say about it. He's going to give us a couple of very short, very powerful stories to illustrate uh, a, maybe an angle of prayer that we haven't thought about. So here's how he opens it up. Next verse. He said, then he said to them, after he told them how to pray, he said this. Let me explain some things to you. Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight, and he says, friend, I need three loaves of bread because a friend of mine has come on a journey to see me, and I don't have any food to give him. He's hungry from the journey. Well, his friend inside answers, don't bother me. The door's locked. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Jesus said, I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him the bread because he's his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. This is an interesting story, one they would have understood. This parable, like most parables, introduces tension in the beginning. And here's the tension. Late at night, most people are in bed because they don't have street lights. So when darkness came, most people went to bed. The way houses were made, by the way, is they had pretty much an open door, and it was an extended family, and they typically had one large room with maybe, a, if they could afford it, some smaller like storage rooms. They didn't have a kitchen, dining room, three bedrooms, two and a half baths. No. They had a bath and a path, if you will. Basically, they had this big room. And so at night, they would close a door, and they would bolt it to protect them from you know, robbers or intruders. And they would lay down mats, and the whole family slept in this big room. And so when he said, I'm in bed with my children, what he means is we've all laid down. My children are asleep beside me. We're huddled together in a not very big uh, house. Most of these houses are not big at all. And so we're all here in bed. I get up. I disturb everybody. I've got to light a candle. I've got to find you some bread, you know. It's just really importunate. In other words, it's really, uh, you know, it's just like I don't want to go ask him. So the tension comes from this. Going to the neighbor 
and knocking on the door and saying, I need you to get up and disturb your whole family. I need you to give me some bread. But here's the tension. There's strong hospitality laws in the entire Middle East. I'm not just talking about Jews now. Strong hospitality laws. Centuries and generations have reinforced it. And so when you have a traveler, a friend who comes at night, you're going to feed them. They're coming in at the end of a journey. They're hungry. They're tired. They're thirsty. You're going to give them some water to wash their feet. They're going to give them something to drink. You're going to set some, at least some bread, maybe cheese if you have it, whatever you have. You're going to set it out for them. And to not have that was just unbelievable. I mean, it was just one of the rudest things that you could do. It was really being caught uh, totally unprepared. So here comes this unexpected visitor. The laws of hospitality say you have to feed them. You don't have anything. So now you're caught, and they're all feeling like, ooh, well, a bad situation. Ooh, I've, that happened to me once. Ah, that was very embarrassing. Visitor comes, you have nothing. Neighbor is already asleep. You're caught between two very embarrassing situations. So Jesus sets up, just brilliantly, this tension. And so he says, and they go, really, this is about prayer? He goes, yeah, let me just get your interest here by telling you, you're in a tough situation, aren't you? He says, so he goes to his neighbor, and he says, dude, I am so sorry. You know, that's a kind of a loose translation. Dude, I am so sorry to be knocking on your door at night, but I need some bread. And the neighbor goes, no, I am not getting up. Leave me alone. Go away. And Jesus says this. He said, you know human nature, don't you? He's not going to get up. But if you keep knocking on his door long enough, he's going to get up and give you the bread. And so Jesus says, because of his persistence, he'll give you the bread. Whereas he wouldn't just because you're his friend. You keep knocking, he will get up, and he will open that door. So the parable creates the tension, and then the point Jesus wants to make is being persistent will get you that bread more even than friendship. So the parable takes a little different turn because you're thinking to yourself, who's God in this situation? I mean, really, it's about prayer. We're the ones knocking on the door because we need something, right? I've got a situation here, and we're knocking on the door, and God is the one, he says, and I'm going to tell you why he portrays God in this way in a minute. God is the one saying, hey, I'm busy, go away. You know, you're bothering me at a bad time. And Jesus said, I tell you what, even if he won't give you what you want because of that, you keep persisting, and he will. And they go, really? You're telling us something about prayer, and you're telling us something about God, but it's not what we thought. That is not the message that we expected, is that persistence is what's going to prevail. Well, I want to dive into that for a minute, but he goes right into another story. Let's talk about this one next. He tells him a different story with a really similar idea. Then Jesus told him, his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Notice how he's picking up this idea of persistence. Don't give up in prayer. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. In other words, this is sometimes called the parable of the persistent widow, but it's also called the parable of the unjust judge. In other words, there's a judge who could do anything he wanted. He did not care about what men thought. It was a lifetime appointment, and he didn't fear God, so he wasn't worried about dispensing justice. He did what he wanted to do. Wait, is this a parable, or did I just read this in the New York Times? Just kidding. Unjust judge. So Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a story. There's an unjust judge. Well, they thought, well, we've known some of those before, too. And there was a widow in that town 
So a widow has no one to protect her interests, no husband to go for her. They're weak, powerless in that society. And so you have a widow, someone who's helpless in that culture, who kept coming to him with the plea, give me justice against my adversary. I don't know if it's somebody who was throwing her out of her house unjustly. I don't know if it's somebody who was cheating her in a business deal or someone who was just thought, you know, there's nothing you can do about this. You're pretty powerless. I'm going to take advantage of you. But you get the idea that there's some injustice being done. And she came to him and said, make this right. You're the judge. For some time, he refused. He doesn't care. You can't do anything to me. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, in other words, even though I don't have to do justice, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so she won't wear me out with her constant asking. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge said. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This method, notice what we have here. We have God being put in the position of an unjust judge or in the position of a neighbor who doesn't want to get out of bed. This is actually a rabbinic method of teaching. Jesus is not saying, okay, God's pretty much like an unjust judge. What he's saying is they're arguing from the worst of humanity to the best of God. In other words, it's a teaching method called contrast. He's basically saying this, if even the self-centered neighbor will get up and give this, if even the unjust judge will give this widow justice because she's so persistent, then how much more won't God do this? So it's really interesting to see God portrayed as a kind of a negative character, I guess you will, but it's a rabbinic method of teaching. And I'll show you there's one more in this. Jesus is using this teaching method they're used to. It's the contrast from the worst of man, and you draw the obvious conclusion. He doesn't say this, but they're like, if even the unjust judge will do this, if even the neighbor will do this, then, well, how much more would God not do this? So it's a very interesting technique of teaching. And so he paints this bad light, but shows the power of persistence. Now, Jesus, I'm going to show you another passage here that's not a parable, but I want you to see Jesus actually plays this idea out, not just in parable, but in real life. Here's a story you may remember. There was a Canaanite woman, meaning she's not Jewish, from that vicinity, came to Jesus, following him as he goes from town to town, teaching the gospel. He didn't do that just in Jewish towns. He said, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And Jesus didn't answer her. So his disciples came to him and said, would you please send her away? Because she's just back there. Can you not hear her? She's back there following us. Lord, son of David, heal my daughter. This is some non-Jewish woman. Would you just turn around and tell her, lady, leave us alone. As the disciples came and said, him, send her away, she's crying out for us. So he answered, he turns around and he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. You know what he said? I'm just here to speak to the Jews. And so she, uh, and the woman, but she came and she knelt down in front of him and she said, Lord, help me. Oh, well, doesn't that break your heart? What are you going to do if you're Jesus? I'm going to help you. I know that I came for the Jews first, but I don't want your daughter to suffer. Well, it's actually not what he says. Here's what he says. 
He said, you know, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Is that rude or what? I mean, he basically says, you know, the message and the gift and the healing power that I came to show the Jewish people, it's not right to take their food and toss it to the dogs. I don't know about you, but if I'm the lady, I'd probably be ticked off a little bit. I might be offended and go, well, look at you, Mr. Jewish holy man. But she doesn't. What does she do? She said, yes, Lord, that's right. But even the dogs can eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What does she say? She said, you can say anything you want, but I'll take the crumbs. In other words, please help me. I'm not going to stop asking you. You can be rude to me, you can ignore me, but I'm not going to stop asking you. So now watch what happens. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very day. This is, is really, now I want to get to one of the key principles here. You get the idea of persistence with the neighbor persistence with the judge, get the idea of the woman who's asking for even the crumbs. I'm going to just keep asking because I have nowhere else to go. And Jesus answers in an interesting way. He sees persistence as an expression of faith. Remember what he says to her, what faith you have. Remember at the end of that parable about the persistent widow, he said, you know, that judge He's going to give her what she wants just because she's bugging him. He said, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith here? Do you see what he's saying? Do you see the point he's making? Persistence in prayer is a sign of faith. If we don't believe that God can meet our needs, then why would we ask him? And if we believe that he can, like this woman, that he is our only hope, that he can fulfill our needs, we would never stop asking him. That's what Jesus is saying. If we trust in that, why would we ever stop asking? And hence these three stories, two parables and one incident about persistence as an expression of faith. Let me show you some other passages because I really want you to get this idea out of these parables is that God sees faith expressing itself through persistence. Look at this passage. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, these are just various things that happened during his ministry. I just want you to see this thread running all through the scripture. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt down before him. Now you know probably from sermons, those of you who haven't heard sermons, I'll just tell you, if you had leprosy at that time, they didn't understand it. They thought it was contagious. They thought it was vile. And as a leper, you could not live in a town. You lived in a leper colony. And lepers in the Jewish culture, you were not allowed to be around crowds. But this guy comes and kneels down in front of Jesus, which in and of itself, any other Jewish leader would go, what are you doing? You know, you are unclean. Get away from me. We will stone you. We will kill you if you get near people. But he comes, he kneels down in front of Jesus. This is kind of like knocking on the neighbor's door, right? Like, hey, I know I'm not supposed to be doing this, but I'm going to kneel down and ask you something. And watch what he says. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Wow, what a powerful statement. 
If you are willing, you can make me clean. What's he saying? He's saying, I have faith that you can heal me. And so he's willing to do the thing that ought not to be done. He's willing to break convention. He's willing to be embarrassed. He's willing to run the risk of being stoned or cast out or run off. He's willing to knock on the neighbor's door. He's willing to keep after the unjust judge. Jesus looks at him and he said, I am willing, be clean. He rewards his faith. The faith is what Jesus values, that you trust me. You are persistent, and that's what he sees. Look at this, Matthew chapter 9. While Jesus was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. So he's on an urgent mission. I don't know about you, but this is like a code, right? This is a 911 call. Jesus is on a 911 call. This is urgent. This young lady has died, and he actually believes that I can bring her back to life. And so he's on his way. He said, but just then a woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him. You remember this story, many of you, as the woman who for all this time has been trying to be healed because for her this uh, bleeding, this hemorrhaging that she has had has also made her unclean. In other words, she's not okay to be around people. She makes them ritually unclean. Certainly not the great teacher. Another rabbi would have said, don't touch me. You'll make me unclean before God. Get away. You need to be quarantined. And this is how she's been living her life. It said she'd spent everything she had trying to get well. But she'd been subject to this disease for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said, if only I touch his cloak, I can be healed. And Jesus turned and saw her and he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Now, is that literally true? Does my believing have the power to heal me? No, it does not. That is not what the Bible teaches. What does Jesus mean when he says that? He said, I'm going to heal you, but I see your faith. I see you risking. I see the persistence. I see you doing things that are embarrassing, are putting you in a position of risk, if you will, like the woman with the unjust judge, like the man going to the neighbor. You get the idea here. Jesus said, you have shown faith. That's what Jesus values, and so he heals her. And then finally, this is a little bit longer, but this is an, uh, just an, another beautiful picture. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered the village of Capernaum. They're a centurion's servant. That's a Roman centurion. He's over 100 soldiers. He's kind of like, oh, think of him like a captain in the army. And so he's over these soldiers. He's not a Jew whom his master valued highly. One of his servants was sick and about to die. Now the centurion heard about Jesus, that he could heal people, and he sent some of the elders of the Jews to go ask Jesus to come heal his servant. Well, the elders went to Jesus, and they pleaded with him, and they said, this man deserves to have you do it. I know he's not a Jew, but please, because he loves our nation, he's built our synagogue. By the way, in Capernaum this week, and I believe we see the remains of probably that synagogue. Very interesting. So this centurion is not a Jew, but he believes in God and he is kindly to the Jews and he gave enough money to build their synagogue. So he built the synagogue, so Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent some friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. 
He knew, by the way, that this isn't true of Jesus, but many of the Jews at that time and many of the rabbis taught that you shouldn't go even in the house of a non-Jew. You certainly shouldn't eat with a non-Jew. And these Jewish elders are like, you know, I don't know about that, but this guy's clearly been good to us. Would you please be willing to maybe go into his house? Well, the centurion sends to him and says, I don't even deserve to have you come into my house. He understands that. He said, that's why I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you. But if you just say the word, I believe my servant will be healed. He said, I'm a man of authority. I say this to a soldier and he goes there and I say there and the soldier goes there. He said, I know what it is to command my servants. He says, and when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. In other words, this man believes that I have this power and this authority and that I can do that from right here. That he's so kindly, he doesn't even want me to have to come into his house and defile myself. Jesus turned to the crowd and he said this, I tell you what, I have not found this kind of faith even among the Jews, even in Israel. And the men who had been sent returned to the house and found that servant well. Do you see the theme that's running through all of these incidents and through this parable? You see that God sees our persistence as an exhibition of our faith. God sees persistence as faith. When we first read those two parables, you probably thought, eh, that's kind of weird. Is God saying that I should just keep bugging him? Is that what's going to get me that? Well, no. The rabbinic teaching method is, if even the worst of humanity will do this, think how much more the good of God will do it. But he does say, I want you to be persistent. Remember, he told them the parable to teach them to pray and never give up because persistence is not just nagging. Persistence is an expression of the fact that, Lord, I continue to beseech you because I know you have the power to do it. You are my only hope, and I entrust myself to you. That's what God sees when we are persistent. Let's go back and look at this passage in Luke. And so Jesus winds up his teaching in there, and he says, So I say this to you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the doors will be open. Now which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, you'd give him a snake instead. If he asks for an egg, you'd give him a scorpion. He says, if you then, even though you are evil, again, there's two rabbinic teaching methods. Look, watch this. If you, even though you're evil, I mean, you're human. You guys know you don't treat each other right all the time know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, you see this method, just like in the parables. He said, so, here's my thing. Ask, seek, knock. He said, because if you know that when your child whom you love comes to you and asks for something good, will you give them bad? No, well then how much more will your Father in heaven do that to you? So let's talk about a couple of ideas here about prayer. First is, this is what grace is. What Jesus is saying is, the word grace means to be favorably disposed towards someone. To be gracious to someone. That's a word that's gone out of our vocabulary and I wish it would come back in. To be gracious means to treat someone as though you like them, as though you are favorably disposed. 
So you come to someone's house unexpected and a gracious host or a gracious hostess will open the door and instead of saying, yeah, what are you doing? You're 30 minutes early for the party. You know, come back later. We'll come in and say, oh, I'm so glad that you are here. Come in. We would call that a gracious host. What does that mean? You are well disposed. God's grace essentially is the fact that through no merit of our own and kind of unexplainably, he, he loves us. He is so favorably disposed towards us. I want you to think about that when you pray. I want you to think about that when you pray because God wants to hear from you. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I pray, I feel like I'm bothering God. And Jesus got over that with these parables, didn't he? He said, ah, don't bother. You just bother him. In fact, he wants you to keep bothering him. Sometimes when I'm praying to God, I feel like, you know, I don't know if you're listening, but I'm really in a tight spot. And, you know, I realize I should be thanking you, but you know, I, I, I just need to talk to you. And I just, I don't know. Are you listening? Are you there? Am I just sliding things under the door? Is anybody reading these letters that I keep, you know, giving to you? The image of the scriptures is this. God wants to hear from you. He is favorably disposed. In fact, he keeps checking up on you. It's sort of like someone who's really powerful. You are working, you know, I remember when I first started in a large company, I was kind of at an entry-level deal. And it would be like the CEO calling you up. Hey, Terry, how are you doing? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, actually, I'm doing fine. Matter of fact, I'm working real hard right here. He goes, hey, I just wanted to call and check on you. I know we have 300,000 employees in this company, but I was thinking about you, and I just want to make sure everything's going okay with you. Well, that's a human example, isn't it? It, it would make an impression on you, wouldn't it? Okay, then how much more of an impression should it make on us when we go to pray to God to know you want to know how I'm doing? That's the grace of God. That is what grace is all about. And it should humble us, and it should warm us, and it should make us want to pray. And that's what Jesus said. He said, ask. Why do I ask? Well, you know, people ask this question. They say, why do we have to pray? God knows what we need before we pray. And Jesus said, yeah, that's true. That's why you don't need to babble. You don't need to do rope prayers. He knows. Well, then why am I asking? Humility. Because every one of these stories, you see when people come to God, they don't come to God like a servant. God, uh, go, go clean that mess up. Uh, God, hey, get up, quit. Do quit what you're doing and get that towel and go clean that mess up. We don't come to God like he's our servant, although sometimes we do, don't we? I mean, really, sometimes we do. But we come to God with an awareness and a little humility that I came to ask you something because I really need you. The story of the... Canaanite woman, I have nowhere else to go. The story of the widow, no one else can give me justice. The story of the man with his friend, I don't have any bread. We ask because we come to God in a posture of humility and awareness of our own need. We seek. I love that. We seek because Jesus said prayer is an active thing. It's not a passive thing. It's like, oh, I'm afraid all I can do for you is pray. Wish I could help you, but at least I can pray. Jesus doesn't think about it that way. He says, oh no, prayer is seeking. Prayer is active. It's not passive. You are prayer warriors. You are praying as an active endeavor. You are coming before the throne of God. It's like saying, well, I can't do much for you, but I'll go argue your case before the Supreme Court. It's like, whoa, that's serious. That's, we're going to need to 
That's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Prayer is a big deal. He says, seek. He says, go, be active. And he says, knock. Knock, 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 and keep on knocking. Persistence. We come before God with humility. We come before God in an active way, believing not in our, that our prayer is important, believing that the God to whom we pray is powerful, and we just keep coming. And when God sees that, he doesn't say, you're bothering me. He said, you really believe, don't you? God wants us to persist in prayer. What a beautiful parable. Not what you would expect Jesus to say, but that's what he tells us. Well, let's talk about a couple of lessons out of this. First is this, prayer is the pipeline to God's power for kingdom living. I told you at the beginning, I think prayer is probably an untapped resource for most Christians. And as we think about kingdom living, that's my phrase for knowing that eternity is going to happen, knowing that we are here under the rule of God and he is working in powerful ways in this world, that's got to have some implication about how then I shall live. In other words, what does it look like to live in this rule of God? What does it look like to live, surrender to God and say, not my will, but yours? What do you want done? Because I'm following you. That's what I call kingdom living. Well, kingdom living isn't easy, is it? He said, I want you to forgive people that don't deserve your forgiveness. I want you to love people that aren't very lovable. I want you to take some of the things that you worked hard for, and I want you to give them to people that need them. Well, God, they don't deserve them. I didn't say they deserved them. I said they need them. In other words, he's going to ask us to do some hard things. Prayer is the pipeline to God's power to be able to do it. If you remember when we talked in our parable about forgiveness, remember what Jesus' message was with the unmerciful servant and the two debtors? He said, you aren't going to be able to forgive people just out of your own trying hard because you know what? People are not that lovable. Some are. Most aren't. He said, you're not going to do it out of your own power. You're going to have such a deep awareness of your forgiveness. That's what's going to power your ability to forgive other people. It's God's forgiveness of us that empowers that. Same thing with prayer. You're not going to go live this kingdom life all on your own by trying to be a good person. Go try to do the good thing. Prayer is that pipeline that taps into God's power to do that. I'm going to give you, if you get nothing else out of this lesson, It'll be worth being here to hear this. I'm going to show you an unbelievably powerful example of this. Memorize this passage. Philippians 4, 6 through 8. <clears throat> What's one of the greatest troubles that we have? You may say sickness, grief, all these things. I would say those are absolutely true. Probably the greatest challenge to Christians is anxiety, worry, fear. We become anxious like everybody else in the world. What will the future hold? What will happen? Will this work out? Will it not? Will I be healed? Will bad things happen? Will my children be okay? We have a lot of anxiety. Everybody in this world has a lot of anxiety. Anxiety is not kingdom living. I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I'm just telling you. That is not what living under the rule of God is about. It's not about being anxious. Oh, are we? Yes. I have no condemnation for us. I just want to say, here's the solution to that. Prayer is the pipeline to God's power to living the kingdom life, including letting go of anxiety. Look at this passage. Do not be anxious about anything. Literally, I mean, do not worry about anything. 
It's like, what are you talking about, Paul? He said, don't be anxious about anything, but in every circumstance, by prayer and petition, knock, 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 by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what will happen? And the peace of God, which is beyond your ability to understand, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a beautiful passage. What is he saying? You do not need to be anxious about anything. That's not the kingdom life. He said, I'll tell you what, you, what to do when that happens. In every circumstance, pray, petition, ask, seek, knock, with thanksgiving, with some humility. Present those requests to God and the peace of God. But here's what it doesn't say. Here's the difference between this and the prosperity gospel. And God will make it all perfectly good. He will take care of your problems. He'll make everything work out good. That's not what anything in the Bible says, but it has something even better. It says, and the peace of God, not just getting over it. This is the peace of God, which is beyond your ability to actually understand how you can be at peace in the midst of circumstances, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's going to go on in just a few verses. And he's going to say, I have learned the secret of being content in any circumstance. He said, I've had a lot and I've had nothing. I've suffered a great deal, and I've also lived in comfort. He said, I've learned the secret to be content in any circumstance. This is it. In every situation, prayer is the pipeline that opens the power of God to bring peace into our hearts. Prayer is often called a means of grace. Sometimes we say it's a spiritual discipline. You should discipline yourself to pray. I don't like that phrasing. I understand what people mean by that, that we should pray. But I actually want to turn that around, and I want to say prayer is a means of God dispensing his grace. Prayer is where we meet God, and the pipeline opens up so that he pours out his grace. That's what this passage is saying. In your prayer, that opens a pipeline, if you will, and God takes your anxiety and then pours out his peace. Prayer is the means through which God dispenses his grace. If you and I think about prayer that way, we will want to pray all the time. It's no longer a duty. We will be persistent because we want that pipeline to let go of our anxieties and let God pour his grace into us. This is a powerful passage for kingdom living that simply explains the power of our God through prayer. And Jesus said, if you understand it this way, now you understand why you keep knocking on the neighbor's door. Now you understand why you keep going back to the judge. Now you understand why I want to see your faith because I will pour my grace into your life. Powerful teaching on prayer. This is probably one of the most, it's not a life-changing verse. It's simply a verse that expresses the life-changing, life-transformative power of God living in the kingdom. Not my will, but thy will be done. Lord, I come to you in prayer. And God says, and I'll meet you in prayer. I love you. I want to give you good gifts, and I will make you at peace. Powerful teaching. Finally, I give you this blueprint. Some people will say, well, then how then shall we pray? Well, there's no rote way to pray, 
But I will tell you this, I like this little acronym because it orients my mind in the right way. It's called ACTS, A-C-T-S. Begin your prayer. Just discipline yourself to begin your prayer with adoration. Instead of, Lord, I can't tell you how many prayers I have that are like this. Lord, uh, don't have time for the Thanksgiving adoration confession. Just need to skip right to what I need. Don't have much time. Need you to get right on this. That's unfortunately where our prayers are too many times. This is a great discipline. It says this. Begin with adoration. Stop and think about to whom I'm talking to. Lord, here's how David put it in the Psalms. He said, Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is, who is man that you have loved him? He said, I see the stars and the moons when you've set in place. I see the heavens, which are the work of your fingers, and you care about me? What a beautiful psalm that David says. We begin with adoration to say, you love me and I don't know why, but I bask in your love. Adoration, confession, and say, Lord, I am not the man you've called me to be, and I repent of the things that I've done wrong. Again, like David, Lord, search me and know my heart. If there is any sinful way in me, take it away from me. That's confession. Thanksgiving. Give thanks to God. Have an attitude of gratitude. And then finally, present our cares, as Philippians 4, 6 says. It's a beautiful little format to follow, and I would urge you, write that down, A-C-T-S. Begin your prayers with adoration. What do you want to say to God? Confession. Thanksgiving. And then supplication, which simply means my requests, my prayers to God, and see if we don't find that God pours out his grace into our lives through this channel of prayer. So summarizing, Jesus' teaching on prayer is not what we would expect. He doesn't see it as a duty. He doesn't see that there's any power in us saying it. He doesn't think prayer makes us a better person by praying. He says, Prayer is an expression of your trust in God. And that convicted me when I first, by the way, many years ago when I realized that. That's what Jesus is saying in these parables. Why is he teaching persistence? God sees that as faith. You know what that means? If I'm not praying, I'm not really trusting God. I was convicted of that. And I thought, if he understands my persistence in prayer to be an expression of my faith, then I need to express my faith. And prayer, when I thought about prayer as a way of expressing my trust in God's ability to do all these things that he said he did, it changed the way I looked at it. It changed the way I looked at it significantly. And I think it will change the way you look at it as well. So, you know what your assignment is this week. I want you to pray continually. I want us to think about prayer the way Jesus thought about prayer. When we go to God in prayer, I want us to think about, first of all, the grace of God. God loves me. He knows who I am. He knows my name. He knows my situation, and he wants to talk to me. And then as we begin to pray, we realize, Lord, I'm just going to keep coming to you with my adoration, with my confessions, with my thanksgiving, and with my requests to you. And then I'm going to feel your peace, and I'm going to continue to walk your path, and I'm going to live out your kingdom in this world. Prayer is the conduit to God's power for kingdom living. Tap into it this week. Next time, we're going to talk about some really down-to-earth parables. Jesus, Jesus told so many parables about money, but it's actually not what you think. I put this, faith and finances, is it about tithing? Is that what it's about? As Jesus' parables say, give, 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 give. 
It's actually not what you think. Just like prayer, Jesus wants to reorient our thinking on this. So this week, be in prayer. And next week, we'll talk about giving. I'll see you then.